Good morning, everybody. Am I on? Am I on? Am I on? Testing. You can hear me like not just... Yeah, okay. Good. All right, welcome. Uh, let's take a moment now to pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you once again for your son Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. We also thank you, Father, for providing for us, taking care of all our needs and both as individuals and, and as the body here. We also, Father, ask that you would continue to shepherd us so that we can um, find a new place, that we can gather together. We do want to pray this morning also, Father, for the needs of the saints, for the, anybody who is going through a difficult time right now. We just pray that your word would comfort them and the spirit would build them up. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the spirit. Amen. All right, good morning again. Just as another reminder, uh, and this is now on our website in a couple of places also. This is our address, mailing address. This is not where we're going, because this is, this is our mailing address, okay? But in any event, 3, 3907 North Federal Highway, Suite 223, Pompano Beach, 33064. All right, well, um, I have some updates. Yeah, one of them now is that... Uh, we, uh, the earliest that we can close now, it's been changed. Our, our closing date's later than we thought. So now it's going to be sometime between July 1st to July 12th. Which means that we have a couple of more Sunday services that we're going to have here. Alright, so, hey. Um, of course, we're still looking for a facility um, to, you know, eventually go to. I want to mention that... Um, Good news this morning, great news, that Art Cam, whom a lot of you know, um, has graciously offered to allow us to use his facilities to hold our services until we find a permanent location. So we're going to be able to meet there Thursdays and Sundays, all right, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, What's that? Uh, Okay, well, he, he sits in the back with his wife when he comes, Art and Cindy. Big fisherman, great friend of Steve Pomeroy's. Um, so, yeah, so uh, he has a facility. It's on Southwest 10th, right after, coming this way, right after 95. And a left, Newport something. I don't know, Newport, anybody help me on that? Anyway, it's a, it's a complex. You'll have the address, all of that stuff. So just wanted to let you know that. Um, I'm very excited about that. One of, my, one of my concerns, quite frankly, was that we would be keep kept together in the interim, and sometimes if we're just on Skype, you know, sometimes people can drift away, and I don't want that to happen, so I'm very grateful to, to Art to do, for doing that for us. Um, once again, I know I mentioned this last week, but after we close, let's say it's the 1st of July, we will still have that one month to completely move out, and, and I can mention this before, we are going to need some help in packing things up and maybe throwing some things out. Um, at some point, obviously, that's been pushed out a little bit because of the ch- of the fact that it's later, the closing is later than we thought it would be. Um, and, admit, and by the way, beginning today, as I mentioned last week, you're going to have an opportunity to go around and claim stuff, all right, that you might want. We have a lot of furniture we're not taking with us, books, other items, all right. We this week we went through the building and we marked in a, with blue tape everything that we want to take. So if, you, if you're interested in something and you look around and there's no blue tape, voila, okay? So 
We want, I don't know how we're going to keep that organized. I don't want any fights out there, you know. It was four or five years. I was here first. I saw it. So keep that to a minimum. Otherwise, we're going to start auctioning things off, and you're going to have to pay a bar. But only kidding. All right, let's begin. Title of today's message, as, as you can expect, is, yeah, that's it, is from John chapter 5, which we're beginning today. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? We're going to see what this is all about. At this time, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18 is what we'll be covering this morning. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. Do you want to get well? Very interesting question. A lot of times we assume people do, but at the same time, sometimes they have to come to terms and make the decision. You know what? I really do want to get well. And that's what this is about this morning with a certain man that Jesus comes across when he travels to Jerusalem. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Give you a moment to get there. John 5, 1. After these things, we're going to talk about that phrase in a minute. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. Notice it's not named. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Anytime he's by the Sea of Galilee, anywhere they're going is up, right? Because it's the sea level. Jerusalem was about a thousand feet higher than that. Now there is in Jerusalem, verse 2, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, porches. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. That verse may be in brackets. If you, if you have a King James, it's just there. In some of the more modern translations, it's in brackets. Some actually leave it out entirely. If you read an NIV, occasionally you'll see it goes from like verse 2 to verse 4. And you might scratch your head. And that's just because they, they, they left the verse out because they, did, they didn't identify it as being in the, in the texts that are, they're using now. All right, just so you know. But we're, we're going to read it and we're going to talk about it. Verse 5. A man who was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. 
The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Chapter 5, which we begin today, also begins an entirely new phase in the ministry of Jesus. The scene shifts. We've been in Galilee with him, and now it shifts to Jerusalem. Galilee was the place of the first two of his great signs. This morning we're going to, we see a third one. He performs this third sign that John records. The healing of a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. But this time his miracle is going to raise the hackles of a group called the Jews. All right. Now, it's really important, especially given the history of the church, which unfortunately had, uh, had anti-Semitism going on. All right, if you ever think of the Spanish Inquisition, for example, right? Totally misread the Gospel of John when it has that phrase, the Jews. Here's why. It does not refer to the Jewish people as a whole. It may sound that way, but not at all. It's actually a technical term that John uses for these people, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Quite often, most of the time, when he says the Jews in his Gospel, he is talking about religious leaders in Jerusalem. Pharisees, priests, and so forth. All right? what there are sometimes when he isn't, and the context will be clear that he's not. He's talking about all the people. Like, for example, we saw that we talked to the woman at the well. He said, salvation is from the Jews. Well, there he's talking about the whole people. But here, and basically, if it's negative, he's talking about the religious leaders. If it's positive, he's talking about all the people. All right. Just so that's clear. Let's go back now. Let's start in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The phrase, after these things, in the Greek it's metatauta. You might wonder, why do I give you the Greek sometimes and not others? The reason for that is that there are some things when he uses certain Greek phrases, they have a meaning associated with them. And sometimes the translations in the English are not always the same, or they may translate other words with the same translation. But it's key to understand that this is a marker. We'll see that in just a moment. Well, right now, as a matter of fact, it's an unspecified amount of time that has passed between what was before and what's now. After those things, this. See, the English, you might think it was immediately after that. Like, 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 you know, after, after I went into my office and I started teaching. Like, but it's not immediate. This phrase, metatauta, means there's an unspecified amount of time that passed between what came before, which was in this case, him being in Galilee and healing the royal official's son, and then him heading off to Jerusalem. Now what that tells us is, is that there was time for other things to happen between the, the, the miracle of the, of the royal official's son and now Jesus heading up to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, in at least three places in this gospel, this phrase, metatauta, is used to mark a gap of time during which events that are recorded in the other three gospels fit in. So you, so you may wonder, well, how come John doesn't have this episode or that episode? And if I'm just reading his narrative, I don't really see where those could have fit in. Because, by the way, John's gospel is the, is, is the most lengthy in terms 
Not in terms of the number of words, but of the period of time that he describes. If you were just to have read the, the other three, we sometimes call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you could come away with the understanding that Jesus' ministry was just about a year. It's only by John's reckoning that we understand it was more like three years. Okay? Yet there's a lot of material that are in the other three gospels that aren't in John. As a matter of fact, 90% of the material that is in John is not in the other three. So just so you understand that. So there are times when, when John will say, metatata, meaning now there's a period of time that I'm not covering, but it, did, it was there, and then he doesn't say this, but when you go to the other Gospels, you can say, oh, that fit there. I understand now. So three other places he does do that, including in addition to this one. Now I want to tell you about this one. Um, here, between John 4.54, last verse of chapter 4, in John 5, 1, the first verse of chapter 5, which he begins with, after these things, meaning there's a gap of time between 4.54 and 5.1, it turns out that the events of Luke, chapter 4.16 through 5.39, occur in that gap. In other words, he had a lengthy ministry in Gal- Galilee that John doesn't record. John has a lot more of a focus on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And, th- and that is not in the other three Gospels. So there are a lot of pla- several places where, where he'll just say, after these things, or metatata, meaning, if you want to know more about these things, follow the timeline and go look at the other Gospels and you'll see. As you might guess, because John is three, three years, these tend to er- be happening early on in the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, we have it here in 5.1. It's again in six. Chapter 6, verse 1, and chapter 7, verse 1. Okay. So, I wanted to give you that information. It really helps. A lot of people have that question. How do I compare the Gospel of John and its record of events with the other three and their record? Because the, the other three are pretty consistent with one another. This is different. John's is a different Gospel. In that, in that sense. Now, here in John, this is the second time that John records Jesus going up to Jerusalem from Galilee. And it's very interesting. Um, If you've read all of chapter 5, perhaps you've noticed this, that the disciples are not mentioned in chapter 5. They're nowhere to be seen. And that tells us that Jesus went alone from Galilee to Jerusalem. That in itself marks, this is something different, this is something new, and he's going to come back and everything's going to be different. And we're going to see that this morning when he comes back. By the way, I'll just throw this in. That the other thing that that does when you have Jesus going to Jerusalem alone and leaving the disciples back in Galilee, what happened was they went back to their job and all that. And then that's why there's a second calling. Some people get confused. How come we see Jesus calling his disciples twice? And the answer is, is, well, the first time he was just introducing them and having a ministry, a little ministry in Galilee. Then he leaves for a period of time. Then things are totally different. And now he's going to have a very public ministry. And then he goes back and he calls them, as it were, officially to join him on his public ministry. So I know that's a lot, but I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about this, these connections between the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke on the one hand and the Gospel of John on the other. Okay, let's, let's read verse 2 now. John chapter 5, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, 
By the way, it's actually Aramaic, I'll throw that in, Bethesda, having five porticos. Now, I want you to, there's one thing that's one word here that's kind of fascinating. And you may miss it, okay, but I'm going to tell you what it is. It's the word is. Notice, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In other words, when John was writing his gospel, it sure sounds like Jerusalem was still standing and the gates were still standing. He's saying, now in Jerusalem, there is. It's fascinating because we don't know for sure, but it could very well indicate that John wrote this gospel earlier than most people think. That the conventional wisdom is that he wrote it in the 90s AD. But it's possible that he wrote it earlier than that. Because 70 AD was when Jerusalem was completely wiped out. Okay, in any event. Now, I want to show you a picture of, this is Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. All right, when he, there's a lot here. All right. It's a fascinating, you know, I may, I may actually print this up and give it to you at some point. I mean, there's a lot here. This is where he was crucified and buried. These are the, where his trials were held before Pilate, the Praetorium. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, where, and so forth. There's a lot here. Place when Steve, where Stephen was stoned later on. But this morning, I just want you to notice a couple of things. I want you to notice this, because that's the sheep gate. Mentioned here in chapter 5, right? This sheep gate, all right? And here is the Bethesda pool. You see it? Which, as, it was, as, as John records, is right by the sheep gate. Interesting. By the way, I hope you notice that right below the sheep gate is what? The temple. Right? Can you see that? Sheep gate, temple. Right near each other. In other words, if you were coming from the north or the east, you went through the sheep gate... You would be like right there. You'd be right there at the Temple Mount. All right, keep that in mind. All right, that's important as well. All right. Now, as this picture shows, as I mentioned, the Sheep Gate is not far from the Temple. However, it might have been as well been a million miles away, as far as that multitude that was gathered around the, the Bethesda Pool was concerned. It was a total night and day difference. I mean, here you had a multitude of people who were in great need. They were lame, they were blind, uh, paralyzed, and so forth. And then here we have the Temple Mount, where the priests were, and the Pharisees, and so forth. And uh, by the way, we have no record of these guys going over here to help these guys. So it might as well have been a million miles away, even though it was very close. John chapter 5, verse 3. In these... Okay, these are the five porticos or porches that, was, that were there in, the, in this facility over here, the pool. There were five different ways in which to enter the pool. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered. And by the way, Jesus would have much rather, he did, we can see over and over again, that he wanted to spend his time with these kind of people. With those who were in need, the prostitutes and the blind and so forth. He was really not... It wasn't very pleasant. He was really not enthusiastic about going to see these people. We'll see some more of that this morning. The days lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now, here's this phrase, which in the New American Standard is in brackets. It is, it is left out of the new NIV. But let's read it. Waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool. And stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, 
stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, this is going to be a story of a miracle that Jesus performed. It was a unique, incredible, sensational sign that this is the Messiah. But let me ask you something. If this were true, that there was an angel that stirred up the waters and then the first one in was healed, what Jesus would have done would have been no big deal, right? Because people are getting healed in this pool all the time. Does that make sense? So what does that tell you about this? It tells you that there's something wrong with, this, with what's going on here, right? It couldn't have been true, and yet here it is. Now, why would it be here? And I noticed that the multitude, a big crowd of the blind and the lame and the sick were gathered and they were spread out across those five porches. Why were they all there? Why does it say a multitude? I tried to find a picture, but none of the artists ever pick up on that word multitude. They have Jesus healing the man and there's like two or three people around. There were probably hundreds of people around, all right? Think of some of these places around the world where the Catholics claim that there's miracles, like Lourdes, if you've ever heard of that. It's that kind of a situation, that kind of a scene. Now, why were they there? Why were they there at pool? I'm going to tell you why. Because they bought into a superstition, a total myth. That's what is recorded here. What is recorded here is not the facts, but, was, but, the, but the mythology that was in the minds of all the people that were there. So it might as well have been true because they were just spending all the time there. By the way, it's likely that um, there was some kind of underground spring that occasionally just kind of bursts of some respect. And then, whoa, this, the water stirred, you know. Uh, I, I come from an Irish Catholic background. Now, both in that, this time around, the Irish is probably more important than the Catholic because the Irish are a superstitious people. I wouldn't be surprised if all of those things, step on a crack and break your mother's back and you can't have a black cat cross your path and all that stuff. All right, or in baseball, if you, ever, if you ever talked about the hitters in baseball, they all had superstitions. There was one, and baseball players generally, there was a pitcher, when he came out from the dugout, he would always have to step over and not on the baseline. All right? so, the, so that's superstition. It doesn't really matter. Okay? It's, the kind of, it's old wives' tales and kids' stuff, right? But that's what this was. It was a myth, a superstition, and yet look at it. I mean, there was, there was no angel coming into this pool and stirring up the water. And, how, and, and think about God and his grace specifying only one. Only one's going to get healed. Heck, when Jesus went around, he, he used to heal everybody, right? So this doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. That's because it's not true. It's a myth. It's a superstition. However, it was cruel. It was a very cruel joke to be playing on vulnerable people. Because these people, that was their last hope. Right? I wouldn't be surprised if some of those people that were, were not told, but that were, that were selling stuff in the temple, it's really close to the temple, and the money changes and everything, they may, they may have. Now, this is just my speculation, but I don't think it's impossible. They may have had a nice little lucrative business, you know, it, well, those people that are there all the time. I mean, you know how that is, right? What is that expression, the sucker born every minute? You know, business, business concerns sometimes take advantage of that. Well, that's off the t- subject, but it, in any event, Verse 5, here's a man who bought into the myth. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, now there's a multitude. Out of all of those, he focuses and zooms in on this one. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time, yes, 38 years in that condition, you might wonder how Jesus knew that. Well, 
We've already seen that he has this ability to be what's called omniscient. Now, really what it is is the father would, would provide information to him that was germane to the signs that he was going to perform. Just like he knew that that woman at the well had had five husbands. All right? He'd never been to that town before. And anyway, that's what this is too. He knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. And he said to him, our title for the message today, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet. That was a little bed that the poor would sleep on. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. This was a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years now. I want you to think about that. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Many of you know that I was laid up on my back after I had surgery. And I I would never have been able to do that for about two months probably. Just to get up, pick something up, and walk, you know. In other words, it's a miracle, all right. Now, out of a multitude, Jesus spotted this one. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. He was the most pathetic of all of them. 38 years. I mean, that, if, if he were 50 years old when he was healed, you know when he would have taken ill? When he was 12. I want you to think about that. Imagine being a 12-year-old boy, taking ill with something, and then year after year after year, people are telling you, all you've got to do is go to this pool in Bethesda and just be the first one in, and then you'll be healed. Maybe he did it when he was 15 and nothing happened, and 20 and 25 and 30 years old and so forth. I don't know about you, but if that had been me, I would have been pretty bitter, discouraged, and I have a lot of black thoughts in my head. He had no friends. Again, he's been, he's been in this condition for 38 years, no friends. Now, it indicates what Jesus said later, that it's possible, it's probable actually, that the reason that, why he had been, had this paralysis, there was some kind of sinful behavior that contributed in some way, because he's going to say, you don't sin anymore, or you'll be in worse situation. We don't know exactly. I want to say it that way, though, because it's not as if God punished him. All right, But there are some things that we do to ourselves that result in sickness, illness, bad circumstances, and so forth. Okay? He could see nothing beyond his own predicament. It's as if he were buying tickets day after day for a pool lottery that he could never possibly win. By the way, there's no evidence here of any faith in God or in Jesus. None. But with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, this man turned out to be the perfect candidate. Right? Jesus, full of grace and truth, and here's a perfect candidate for a display of the Lord's grace and his power. And his grace, because the man showed no inclination to faith or to think he'd been healed. Like a lot of times, you know, there's this name it and claim it, right? If you believe strongly enough, you'll get it. This man has no indication that he believed anything other than his predicament. And yet Jesus healed him. That's called grace, by the way. It's also called the sovereignty of God. When he makes up his mind that something's going to happen, it's going to happen. All right? This man was the perfect candidate, again, for a display of the Lord's grace and his power. Now, what did Jesus ask him? Notice in verse 6, what did he ask him? Title of today's message, people. 
Do you wish to get well? Now, on the face of it, it's sort of a strange question to ask. Don't you think? Like, in other words, if, if I went into the hospital, and there's somebody who's been in the hospital for 38 years, and I ask him, hey, do you wish to get well? He's going to say, you know what? What's, you're, you're, you're not thinking right. Of course I do. Right? Seems obvious. But it wasn't. Why not? Well, because he didn't answer yes. The man didn't say, yes, I do. The blind man would, but this man didn't say that at all. I wonder why. Well, perhaps he didn't have any desire to get well. I've met people like, no, I've met people like that. That they're in a condition, they're miserable in it, and they just want to die, basically. All right, maybe this was in his situation. In a way, you couldn't blame him. He'd been in this situation for 38 years. So at this point, he probably was just going through the motions. You know how we do that at times. Well, it's not going to work, but I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to do it again. Here I am on my pallet, hoping somebody will bring me in. They're not going to do it. No one's done it in 38 years. And, and it's definitely possible that his mind had just gone black with negativity. And again, on one level, who could blame him? Who could blame him? Jesus healed him anyway. <laughs> Didn't say yes. In his matter of fact, he didn't say he didn't answer Jesus' question at all, right? What did he do instead? I'll tell you what he did. He complained about how impossible it was for him to get into that pool first, right? That's what he said. The sick man answered him, not with yes, oh yes, I've been waiting 38 years for somebody to ask, but sir, I have no man to put me into the pool before the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. How can you expect me to want to get well under these circumstances, Lord? Look, this is absolutely impossible. That was the answer. Jesus healed him anyway. He just complained about how impossible it was. But Jesus healed him anyway. Because again, with man it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So going into this, Jesus of course knew who he was. To him, it was obvious that he would ask that question. It was obvious that the guy would say yes, and it's obvious that he would heal him. There was, most of that is obvious, except for the middle part. But he healed him anyway. It's, it is a definite story of grace. But once again, how, how does he heal him? Does he, does he take some kind of a magic object and dip it into the water, and then you are healed? Does he place his hands over him? No, not this time. In the same manner that he healed the royal official's son, he spoke, and it was so. It spoke, and it was so. What did he say? Well, he said a short command, and he had an immediate, instantaneous miracle. We've seen this before, too. Fill the water pots with water and draw some out. That's what he said. Then he said, go, your son lives. He's in the practice of doing this. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. That's how God is. He's very direct. And he's very instantaneous when he wants to have something happen. This is true of Jesus, of course. Now again, there's a mo- now this is going on. There's this brief conversation. He says, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And the guy gets up, picks up his pallet, and walks. Now remember, there's a multitude of people there. Remember, a multitude of people. All right. Now, they didn't know what had transpired in the conversation, but they did know one thing, because you know what? 
It's really hard when you think about it not to notice a paralyzed man walking by with his mat on his shoulder. That would have gotten most people's attention that day. And the water hadn't stirred. But there's no doubt that this man was healed. They knew that. But at this point, no one, including the man who was healed, knew the identity of the man who healed him. They didn't know that it was Jesus yet. As a matter of fact, perhaps most of them didn't even think it was a man who stepped onto the picture and healed him. They just thought, well, I guess maybe there's more to the superstition than we thought. You know, I mean, that's probably what a lot of them was thinking. I don't know. Verse, verse 9, the B part. Now, it was the Sabbath that day. Now, so far, this is a, this is a story of wonder and joy. And then with these words, this thing turns completely. Which is kind of unfortunate because the real meaning of the Sabbath shouldn't have been the kind of bummer and gloom and doom that this turns out to be. Because it wasn't the Sabbath that was the problem. It was, it was man's traditions that became the problem. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews, now who are the Jews here? All of the people of Judea? No. Right? The religious establishment. The so-called holy people. Now, the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. Now, of course, we might say, wow, this is a great witness. Except that he wasn't witnessing to Jesus the Messiah. What he really was doing was trying to get the pressure off him Because the the establishment was saying, hey, what are you doing? And he says, not me. The guy who made me well told me to do it, you know. The devil made me do it. That's horrible to say. But in his mind, he was saying, blame somebody else, not me. All right. They asked him, who was the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. This was common for Jesus to do. He would slip away. There would be a time in the future where his, public, where his miracles would be public. But still now, they were kept more or less private, by the way, until this guy spills the beans in just a minute. All right. And of course, this was not the only time that Jesus would have a run-in with the Jewish leadership over an issue re- re- pertaining to the Sabbath. It happens quite a lot. We know later on in chapter 9 that Jesus will heal a blind man, and he will heal him on the Sabbath. The Jewish elite, by the way, at this point, they knew the paralytic like everybody else. They knew he'd been healed. And they should have known better. I mean, if you're the religious leaders, and somebody has been healed... Wouldn't you think they would be praising God for making this man well? Wouldn't that be if they were truly, authentically worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought them through Egypt and into, into freedom, wouldn't you think they'd be celebrating? Wow, once again, the power of the Lord is displayed. That's what you'd expect. That's not what you get in this case. They didn't praise God. No, and their noses were all out of joint because of what? a supposed violation of one of the many restrictions that they placed on the people. 
How ironic. Here we are, and they are condemning a man for carrying a light burden on his shoulders. His own bed, his own pallet. And by the way, he was not in the pallet business. All right? This guy hadn't carried anything for 38 years. It was a sign of his healing. And they condemned him for that. A light burden on his shoulders. But remember, here they are coming up with all these restrictions and rules and regulations and all these things that aren't in the Bible. They're not in the Torah. All right? We're going to look at that in a minute. So here they are condemning a man for carrying a light burden on his shoulders when they had placed the heaviest possible burdens themselves on this man's shoulders. Please look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. Jesus would say exactly that. Now, in this case, he's talking to the, to the Pharisees and the leaders, same people. Okay, the people who sat in the seat of Moses. All right. Matthew 23, 4. They tie up what? Heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That's exactly what we have here. Remember, this guy had been 38 years in this condition. And we have no evidence, nothing is told, that these holy people ever went there and tried to help the guy. All they wanted to do was put burdens on the people. All they wanted to do was give them all these ways in which they they would tell them that God was angry with them. That, by the way, is called legalism and religion. And wherever it raises its ugly head, this is what you will get. You will get a multiplication of do's and don'ts that are designed to put people in bondage. By the way, if that's in any respect your idea of Christianity, then you are wrong. You are wrong. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. But they were the slave masters when it comes to the Jewish people at this point in time. The man had carried the burden of his illness for 38 years. Now they're asking him to carry the burden of thinking that he had offended God when he didn't, by the way. What then was the response of these holy men? All judgment, no mercy. That's another great description of religious leaders, by the way. All judgment, no mercy. I hope you're getting the idea that we are not practicing a religion here. We are not. A religion is man thinking that there's all these things that he will do to please God and ultimately be saved. That, my friends, is religion. If you're a Muslim, you realize that there's all these things you have to do. There's Ramadan, there's making pilgrimages, and there are these five pillars that you have to be following. All right? And even after all that, by the way, they don't have a God of love and mercy at all. Okay? Same thing with, with every religion. That's what you'll find. Think about it. All right? with, with, with Buddhism, there's that eightfold path, for example. There's, uh, if you look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, oh boy, they have all these things trying to make you think that there's, if you do all that stuff, maybe you'll be one of the 144,000 special people. Always. That is the mark of religion. If you see that anywhere, run as fast as you can. Even if they call themselves a church. Because that is not Christianity. All judgment and no mercy. 
Of course, the healed man was no great shakes either. I mentioned this already. When confronted with the possibility of being accused of something, he simply blamed the one who healed him. Think about that. No good deed, as they say, goes unpunished. He told me to do it. By the way, this infuriated the elite religious holy men even more. I mean, here's a guy, one guy, who sees you're breaking our rules. But then they find out there's another guy who is telling people to break the rules. In their crazy mind now, not really. That was the farthest thing from Jesus' mind. All right, his, his, he was going to say, All right, this is about my grace and my mercy. And this is going to be an opportunity for me to reveal who I really am. And oh, by the way, he is going to use the the, the vindictiveness and anger of those men in order to really reveal who he really is. But right now, they're, they're saying, hey, how dare anybody instruct somebody to break one of our laws On the Sabbath, I said that carefully. Our laws, that's what they were saying, the Pharisees and so forth. Not God's. They they were not infuriated. By the way, again, if they had really been worshiping God with other than their lips, they would have understood the magnitude of what they had just faced. It was a miracle. This man has has been healed. We should rejoice. We should understand that the Sabbath was a way in which the Lord would give people the opportunity to rest from their work. That's the, the, the essence of the Sabbath, was the Lord taking care of his people and saying, listen, you leave it to me today. I just want you to rest. That's the Sabbath. Not, and I'm going to give you 85 rules. By the way, there were, there were 34 rules just about what you can and can't carry. That's only a small part of what all the rules that they had put in associated with the Sabbath. They taught as doctrines the precepts of men. Now, if you want to find out if, if somebody is teaching as doctrine the precepts of men, you know how you do it? Oh, come on. You know how you do it. What do you do? Be a Berean, right? Check out what they're saying against what the Bible says. That's how you do it. At the same time, they were teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. They were also doing something else that Jesus would talk about in connection with those in the seat of Moses. They were neglecting what he called the weightier provisions of the law. And what were those? This. Who God is. Justice. Mercy. And faithfulness. Who that day was merciful? Was it the Pharisees? No. It was Jesus. He was demonstrating who he is in in the very fact that here was somebody who showed no evidence at all of of believing in God, and yet Jesus healed him anyway. Why? Because of his mercy. By the way, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Talk about pathetic. And what did God do? Did he come on the scene and say, this is why you're so bad. I'm going to give you these 58 rules, and you're going to try to keep them. And if you don't, I'm going to stay mad at you. Is that what God did about the fact that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins? No, he made us alive on the basis of the blood of his son. They should have known all of this. These were the enlightened people. These were the people that knew the scriptures. 
But you can know the scriptures and be blind as a bat about what they mean. So don't, don't automatically be impressed by somebody who has an encyclopedic mind when it comes to the Bible. I mean, that's great. If God has gifted somebody with that, that is awesome. But if they don't understand justice and mercy and faithfulness and love and what God really did at the cross, what good is all that encyclopedic knowledge? No, in fact, it'll become a hindrance. It really will. So so that's what's going on. All right, let's continue now. John chapter 5, verse 14. John 5, 14. Afterward... I'll give you a moment to get there. John 5, 14. So much had happened. Jesus has cured this man. He got up, he took his pallet, and he walked. But the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were condemning this man. And then they say, this, the one who healed me is the one who told me to do this. So then a little more time passes. John 5, 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. This passage gets totally misinterpreted and abused, by the way. He would say later on in chapter 9, when his disciples came to him and talked about the blind man, and they said, hey, hey, Lord, hey, Lord, we got a question about this blind guy, right? Was it he who sinned to put him here or was it his parents? <laughs> and he said, neither, but so that the glory of God would be displayed. But what he was saying here to this man was that there is another issue besides physical healing. Does that make sense? The more important issue is what? Spiritual healing. So he was saying that, listen, you know, you should also understand the fact that you need a savior. You need to understand also that there's a connection between sin and death. Okay, so he was educating him. He was not, he was not threatening to punish him. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. Now he went away. We're not going to see him anymore, by the way. He just says, well, they asked me who he was. I didn't know. Maybe I could still get in trouble because I don't know. And then I find out it was Jesus. Oh, now I have a name. I'm going to go over there, give him the name, and hopefully that'll be that. Mm. Notice that this former paralytic never thanked Jesus for making him well. That would happen a lot, too. He would heal ten lepers, and only one went back and thanked him. I dare say that we could be guilty of the same. That we can, we can understand that the Lord comes through for us, in a big way maybe, but then we go on with our lives and it's as if that never happened. Don't be one of those people. You want to know why? Because gratitude opens things up in your understanding of who you are and who the Lord is. See, if you're not grateful, you're, not, you're going to miss the real power and import of what happened to you. Okay, and what's that going to do? It's going to put you in another state where you're going to find yourself somewhere else and you're going to be complaining just like this man complained and you're going to have to start all over again in understanding how much God loves you. But if you're grateful, you'll learn that. All right? it's, God doesn't need anything from us. Are you, are you clear on that? God needs nothing from us. So everything 
that he tells us to do is for us, including the Sabbath, by the way, which Jesus was saying in another passage. He says, listen, the Sabbath was made for man, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, okay? So the former paralytic never thanked him. By the way, the, the former paralytic didn't give glory to God either. So this, this is not a saint, so to speak. All right? Sometimes we get the wrong idea. As a matter of fact, he tattletailed on Jesus. All right? He's no great shake. Now, here we have this, the Sabbath. Here we have these religious leaders accusing this man of breaking the Sabbath because he carried his pallet home. But you know what? Quite apart from where Jesus is going to go next, his identity, they were totally wrong on the substance of the case. In other words, Jesus had the law on his side. Now, even the law, all right, which of course he, he, he became the fulfillment of the law. And those who believe in Christ are not under the law anymore. Okay? But even in this situation, the, he, he was on the right side of the law, so to speak. Well, or maybe the better way of putting it is the law, law was on his side. I want you to turn to Exodus now. Let's check out the passage upon which these learned men, these rabbis, these elders, these priests, these Pharisees built their huge complex of burdens to place on the people. It was from this. I want you to look at Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. Exodus 20, verse 8. Exodus is the place where you'll find the Ten Commandments. They'll be repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. But notice what God did say about the Sabbath. He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. By the way, the holiness of God is his righteousness and his justice. Okay? Not and so so if you want to keep holy the Sabbath, act in a righteous and just way toward others. Okay? By the way, we're not under the Sabbath now, but I'm talking about when they were. Keep it holy. Now what did how did that translate in terms of what the Lord asked the people, told the people, commanded the people to do? Notice verse nine. Notice verse nine carefully. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, the seventh day, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. On the seventh day, you shall not do any work. Now what happened was, these these rabbis and priests and Pharisees and all these smart people from there said... Well, okay, so let's take that to the nth degree now. Okay, let's start with don't do any work and go to the fact that, you know, you can't even walk more than 30 steps from where you live. Now, is that in the scriptures? Of course not. What's he talking about when he says you don't do any work? Look at verse 9 carefully. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. What's that? Your job. If you're a farmer working in the fields... If you're, if you're in trades, you're doing your spying and selling on those six days, don't do that on the seventh day. All right, let's think about the paralytic. 
Was it his job to carry his pallet around every day? Is anybody paying him for that? No. As a matter of fact, talk about six days. He hadn't done, wasn't able to do anything but 38 years. So this was a total, total disaster if you're trying to apply the scriptures here. All right? It had nothing to do with it at all. As a matter of fact, this is a really interesting thing. The Sabbath was the day to let the Lord take care of you. It was honoring Him and saying at the end of the day, everything we have is from the Lord. If we're having a great harvest this year and in six days a week, my job is to work the harvest, well, on the seventh day, I'm going to realize where that all came from. It went all the way back to the manna when, when the Jews were uh, in, in the desert and they said, we don't have any food. And the Lord said, I'll take care of that for you. I'm going to give you manna from heaven, the perfect food. And here's the deal. It's going to come down six days a week. What I want you to do on day number six is gather enough for two days. There's always more than enough from the Lord. He doesn't need us to be working every day for our own needs. He says, you can do that six days out of seven. But one day I want you to stop all of that and just worship me. Understand my holiness. Understand my grace. Understand my righteousness. Understand that I will take care of you on the Sabbath day. By the way, who did that? Who took care of this man on the Sabbath day? Did the Pharisees take care of him? No. Who did? Jesus. So Jesus was acting in a way consistent with who? The Lord. And guess who he is? The Lord. Exactly. Now you might think, you or I, if I was in this situation and I knew that the law, the Bible was on my side, man, I would be so tempted, I probably would, argue those guys into submission. You guys are wrong, open your Bible, do you even have a Bible? And go to Exodus chapter 20 and go to Jeremiah and I'm going to show you you're wrong. Is that what Jesus did? Not at all. Why? Where did he go? Well, we'll see that in a minute. But he wasn't interested in a debate about the law or anything else. He wanted them to know who he was. It's the same. We've seen this over and over again. He, when, he, when, he, when he was with the woman at the well, remember he had all those statements that each one was a surprise and he asked her the question. All of that he drove to that one place where he said, she asked or said, the Messiah, when he comes, he'll explain all this to us. And then he, there was it. He said, I am the Messiah. Right? That's what he's driving at. That's all he really wanted. At the end of the day, his miracle, everything was driving towards them understanding who he really was. Let's go to Luke chapter 6, verse 5, as we wrap things up. Luke chapter 6, verse 5. They had turned the Sabbath into a day for the traditions of men. However, Jesus is going to use the Sabbath for another reason. Look at Luke 6, 5. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. By the way, this is exactly the whole message of the Gospel of John, right? These things I have written, right, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
Well, the Christ is also the Son of Man. I'm going to prove it to you now, but trust me on this for now. Don't trust me on anything. You can check it out yourself. But that expression, Son of Man, all the way back in Daniel, where it was first used, is talking about the Messiah. I'm the Messiah, and not only that, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Lord of the Sabbath, who instituted the Sabbath? Yahweh? So who is he claiming to be, even in this statement in Luke? The Messiah, the Son of God. And that's what he wanted people to know. Again and again and again and again. So what did he do? How did he do it? What did he do? Here's a perfect opportunity to argue. Did he? No. But he didn't just walk away and that's it. He actually escalated the whole conflict between him and, and, the, and the holy people. Why? Because he wanted to get to the point where he could use what they were saying in order to display who he was. See, here we are. We have these Jewish leaders, and they would rather nip. Now remember, they knew there was a miracle too. But they didn't want to face that because there was too many other things that they would have to come to terms with if they could admit or face the fact that a miracle had occurred. So what did they do? What a lot of people do when they, won't, when they don't want to really face something important. They nitpicked. <laughs> well, you know, uh, maybe it was a miracle, but you know, it's more important though that it happened on the Sabbath and you're not supposed to do that. Right? Why? So they can deflect from actually having to face who this one really is. And that was the whole issue. All right, if someone performed a miracle, wait a minute, now we have to ask who, and then we have to ask by what power and authority did he heal this man, and they didn't want to go there. So Jesus raised the stakes. You've got to love it. Look at John chapter 5, verse 16. Go back to John now. John 5, 16. The issue is the Sabbath until now. They found out that Jesus was the one who instructed this man to carry his pallet home. In their mind, they were, he was committing a horrible sin, but it wasn't true. They were just basing their wrong judgments on a wrong interpretation of Scripture. That happens a lot too. All right? if, if somebody tries to use the Scriptures with a person who is a member of the body of Christ to condemn them, then they are misusing the scriptures. Why? Because there's a scripture in Romans 8.1 that says, therefore there is no condemnation, none for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, if you look around today at most of the churches, you will find lots of condemnation. You will find lots of abuse of the scriptures in order that they might do that. You see? But Jesus was not going to let that go without achieving the purpose that he had. Again, John 5, 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They totally missed who he was. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. You almost want to shout at them. Verse 17, but he answered them, my father. Now, if you think that they were upset when he was talking about doing something on the Sabbath, that was nothing compared to saying, God is my father. Or another way of saying that is, I, my, I am the son of God. Okay, and they knew that, by the way, when he said that. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. God is my father. Since my father works even on the Sabbath to save 
Rather than to judge in another place, the Lord would say, you know what, you guys, you, can, you think you can circumcise a guy on the Sabbath? I just made the whole man well. <laughs> What's wrong with that? You guys, if you have a beast that falls into a, into a hole you, on the Sabbath, you're going to do whatever you can to get him out. And yet I can't get, you know, you think I'm sinning when I get a man out of the predicament that he is in. So, since the Father saves every day of the week, the Son is going to work in like manner. Ah, now things have escalated. This is no longer about an arcane interpretation of a rabbinical tradition. Something much bigger than that. Something greater than the temple is here. This is now about a man who makes himself equal with God. Now, I just want to say something about that. We're going to see this in the gospel. If you've been reading, I keep telling you that. You've already seen it. That in large respect of this gospel, Jesus goes out of his way to talk about the, his subordination to the Father. He said, I do nothing unless the Father tells me to. Right? But here, he's saying, in this respect, I'm going to open things wide up. Because after all, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And he wants them to know that right now. In other words, he moved the question away from different traditions concerning the Sabbath to the only question that really matters. And we've seen this already. Who is Jesus? Now, he told them. You want to know why? Because he did what only the Messiah, the Son of God, could do. And they saw it. And they didn't want to face it. But he wasn't going to let them get away without facing it. My father is working until now. And I am going to work just like he does. Verse 18. For this reason. In other words, the first reason had to do with that Sabbath squabble. For this reason that he's saying he's God's son. Therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not the Jewish people. The corrupt, wicked leadership. All the more to kill him. Because in their mind, he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father. That was true. Making himself equal with God. And here for the first time as we close, we are told that the Jewish religious leaders now seek to kill him. This is not the last time we're going to see this. As a matter of fact, from now on, this is a turning point. Jesus' ministry will now become very public and increasingly confrontational with the Jewish religious leadership. And they would continue to find any way they could to try to kill him. And then ultimately, they did when it was God's timing. When timing and, and even there, the Lord had, as it were, the, not the last laugh because it was anything but funny, but he came through in the most amazing way. He turned even that. Even them going to the Romans and saying, crucify him. And him dying on the cross. Even that, the Lord turned right around into the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is life itself. He's the way and the truth and the life. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your grace allowing us to be here, to get here. Your grace in, in setting up things for, for, for the body of Christ so that it, we will be challenged and built up in the Word of God every time we gather together to hear it. 
We thank you for that gift, Father. We uh, also thank you for the gospel, the gift of salvation by grace through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world, was buried, and he was raised again on the third day. As we leave today, Father, we would ask that we would keep in mind that you still provide rest for us and that it is, it is our privilege to just relax and completely trust in you no matter what it is that might be bothering us, no matter what it is in our jobs and our family life, that we would understand, as it were, that you provide our version of a Sabbath rest also. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Since we have two more weeks now, we're going to... Ha- well, we've been having Bible study on Skype. I think what we're going to do is keep that up for a couple more weeks. And then when we get things set up, where we're going to be in, in Art Cam's building. Then we'll, but we're going to have Thursdays face-to-face again, too. How about that? It's going to be great. All right. Um, I guess that's it. I just want to remind everybody now when we're done, all right, you can feel free to wander around the building and see something you might think you might be able to use, all right, and just uh, speak. Uh, actually, we probably have to shoot, funnel this in one direction, right? Jack, are you going to be around for a little while? All right. Well, at, we'll do one at a time, but uh, for, at the beginning, just go see Jack and let him know if you're interested in something, all right? No fighting. All right, once again, let's close. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for all you give us. We know that you overflow with grace for us, and we should never be worried about anything. And help us to believe that once again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed. Enjoy the bazaar. In my wrestling, in my doubts, in my failures, you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Whoa, you are the peace in my troubled sea. In the silence, you won't let go. In the questions, your truth will hold. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Whoa, you are the peace.